Hey everyone, welcome to GradCast, the official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western, or SOGS as a lot of people like to call it. Um, yeah, we are here, that's we being me, Susan Anthony and Julia. Hey. Julia Palazzi, she's here, and this is a special-ish GradCast very special because we have with us Arwen Johns. Hello. Now, Arwen, we interviewed you last year mm-hmm. about your upcoming field work. Uh, and it was special because not it was Julia's first time being an interviewer at, as part of GradCast. So that was really cool. Uh, and we get to interview now hearing sort of what happened. So we get that follow-up that we... You know, you often miss. You hear what people plan to do, and it's nice to hear what the, what how it actually went. Not only that, but this may also be Julia's last interview. That's right. That is exactly right. Apparently, some people do defend and get out of here. Uh, <laughs> that's the plan, anyways. <laughs> All right. So, like I said, we're talking to Arwen Johns today. Uh, she is a master student in anthropology, and if you go back to, I think it was May of last year, she talked to us about digging through um, animal bones to learn about the social structure of cultures in Peru. So (laughs) please tell us a little, just a little snippet. What is your project that you jumped into? Okay, so my project hasn't really changed all that much from last time, which I'm lucky that way. But one of the things that I'm focusing on is sort of the roles of animals and humans and how they work together in sort of creating um, administrative structures and social change in these Peruvian polities. So we're looking at really early state development in this case. So it's kind of the first time things are coming together in cities. So it's kind of like really interesting social dynamics happening. Uh, nice. So you mentioned that your research is part of a larger project. So would you mind outlining maybe either the larger project or your um, specific role in this research? Absolutely. So the project is run by Dr. Jean-Francois Miller in the anthropology department. Um, he's been working in Peru for a good while now and what this project is focused on is the Viru Valley. That's where the two sites I looked at are. So kind of examining state development Um, in that context and with that sort of like what were the interactions and sort of the expansions during that period. So I was brought into this project um, out of my undergrad to kind of take on some of the zoo archaeology work. So that's again looking at those human and not human animal bones but the (laughs) animal bones in terms of what that can tell us about humans. So that was kind of what I was brought on to do. And so what is the time period that you're looking at? How long ago would that be? Yeah, so for our particular project, we're focused in the early intermediate period, um, which our specific sites are around from 100 um, BC to 700 AD. All right, so like 2,000 years ago? Yeah, 2,000-ish years ago. Nice, and so... Um, what did you do there? Like, how did you get there? What did you do there? And what did you find? I know that's a long-winded question, but... All right, so getting there. Getting there was interesting. So (laughs) we... How things work in Peru, basically, with archaeology is that you're always dealing with the Ministry of Culture, which is really great because they kind of oversee all the different projects and make sure everything are sort of, like, up to certain standards and that, like... They're just kind of that watchdog, I guess, which is really great. Um, With Peruvian archaeology, you can't really take samples out 
of the country. So all the researchers going down are going down um, to collect data there. So one of the things I had thought that I was going to be going in May didn't end up getting there until July. Wow. So that was a lot of that um, dealing with the Ministry of Culture, um, getting our permits all in order. So I have to sort of be filling out all these documents. And thankfully, my supervisor was really helpful with this, but um, to even be granted access to these things. So there was quite a lot of process and paperwork with that. And we kept running into delays. Um, I ended up getting to Peru and then being there for a month without being able to do any research. Wow. Um, So again, just delays with things. There ended up being a national holiday and lots of long weekends and everybody was partying and not so much paperwork. So that set me back a little bit. But um, in the end, everything ended up coming together. I was able to complete a little side project um, for one of the sites, which was really fantastic. But um, as always, the logistics are where things get a little bit hairy. Of course. So how long were you there in total then? Um, I think about a m- two and a half months. About a month and a half of that being actual research time in the end. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so is the Viru Valley, you said, are the sites widely used? Were you kind of the only ones there or did you have to share access a lot of the time? Um, with me, I'm doing mostly a laboratory-based project, so we weren't really actually doing any active excavation at the time, which is really great for archaeology, I think, because so often there's the focus on getting new material out of the ground, and I think that going back and sort of dealing with these collections that are in storage and not really been given any attention is sort of a nice way to kind of... um, not really be destroying sites because archaeology inherently is a destructive practice like we Mm -hmm. can't really undo what we do to a site um so i was mostly in the lab actually but i was luckily able to do a couple site visits to the two sites i was analyzing material from so they were wakagai nazo which is right near the coast um that's an absolutely huge site we're talking like 600 hectares so it's pretty big and then um santa clara which is more inland and that's just a big big old mound structure well, I'm, I'm, yeah, you say it's a big old mound structure. What, what do they, these sites look like? Because there's, I've seen some archaeological sites and I'm like, that's a rock. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. What, what is it like? Um, so these ones, the best way I can describe them, they look like hills mostly, honestly, because a lot of the structures back then for this particular time period were made of um, mud adobe bricks. So they're actually really, really susceptible to damage from rain and moisture. Mm-hmm. So with that, it's usually a really, we're talking coastal desert type environment. There's not really that much going on in terms of rainfall. But obviously over the years and as like sort of El Nino cycles come and go, um, the buildings get more and more worn down. So a lot of times you can see little bits and pieces of the leftover architecture. You can see kind of the bricks or any plastering that they did sticking out. But they do kind of look like big melted sand dunes almost (laughs) and so you mentioned that the sites are susceptible to the elements have you had any issues with that in your time there or are they experiencing any issues with that now i personally have not i was lucky the year that i went was a good weather year to be there um it's not uncommon for this region to have really strong El Nino effect with um really intense rainfall at certain times of the year which obviously in a desert environment that you're not dealing with that on a regular basis can be really catastrophic and that's something that Peru's actually dealing with right now especially along the coast and in the highlands is um really really catastrophic flooding from an El Nino event that's happening right now so with Mm -hmm. that we're getting torrential rains things have mostly cleared up now but sort of dealing with the aftermath of that but um torrential rain for extended periods of time and 
it has wiped out entire towns. There are almost 200,000 people that have been displaced from their homes, or 200 homes. So that's more than 200,000 people we're talking, I guess. But Wow. Yeah, Trujillo, the city I was in, I've heard, has lost 10 years infrastructure. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so it's pretty serious. Yeah, um, for people who don't know, El Nino is uh, what happens when a huge mass of warm mm-hmm. seawater instead of towards the uh, South Pacific, towards you know, Asia, it kind of for some reason reverses direction and <clears throat> heads to the wrong direction. So a place that doesn't experience rainfall all of a sudden gets doused with all this warm air, warm, moist air. And so it's not an, a usual thing that happens. And mm-hmm. it's... It's a not kind of natural thing, but I think it's been accelerating a lot lately. So is there any um, relief efforts going on there? Um, there's a ton going on. Um, something I'm involved with personally with a colleague at University of Toronto who um, does zooarchaeology work as well in the same region. Um, she has kind of coordinated a thing where she's going to be accepting donations and sending them specifically to people she knows that are coordinating local relief efforts. Um, I've been involved kind of a little bit with that, just collecting donations here at Western that will be sent to her and then from there to Peru. So that, that's great to hear because sometimes when you donate to relief efforts, you don't know if it's going to where you want it to go or it's going to some administrator's you know, bank account. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's great to know you have that personal connection there. Now, if anyone wants to donate, are, is it is it money or is it goods? Because goods would be hard to transport. Um, so. For this particular project that I've become a part of with this woman, um, we're doing mostly just money just to keep yeah. it easy with in terms of just doing bank transfers. Okay. Yeah. And please, um, is there a way that you can let everyone know if they want to help out. For sure. Um, So we're pretty informal with everything. What I've been doing so far is just having people get in touch with me over email. So my email is ajohn252 at uwo.ca. If anyone would like to get involved with this and contribute, you can feel free to shoot me a message and we can set something up. And it's it's all, as always, greatly appreciated and it's going to go a long way, I think. Wonderful. And yeah, it's, it's again, nice to know that we know where everything goes. Absolutely. So, right. So back to your, back to your research. Um, Yeah, I I guess my question really is, um, so you've got there, you finally got your permits to access these samples. So what do you do when you get a sample? All right. So for me, I, as I mentioned, like I wasn't doing the excavation. I literally just had 14 boxes um, shipped over to the university in Trujillo where I was working. Um, That's where the comparative collection that I was utilizing is. So with the comparative collection, it's necessary for any zoo archaeology project to have a really good one of these. So what it is, it's it's a collection of all the local species um, of different ages and different sexes of these different species that we can then use to go back. So if I have a little chunk of bone in an ideal situation, I'm going to be able to go to that collection and sort of be like, well, what does this look like? What Mm -hmm. is it kind of? And that'll help me figure that out in a big way. Yep. So once we got to the university, I was able to just basically start up right away. I had a really wonderful lab all to myself at um, Universidad Nacional de Trujillo. Um, with two people who were sort of supervising me while I was there, and they were a huge, huge help. But um, from there, I basically, it was me and my computer just tapping away at all hours, kind of um, inputting all the individual IDs. And there were obviously um, particular variables that we record when we're doing that, but um, a lot of it came down to the comparative collection and the guides. Sorry, that that begs the question, what particular variables? I remember when you were last Mm -hmm. here, we talked about bones that look like they had been part of a roast and bones that look like they're part of a stew. Absolutely. So that's definitely one thing that I recorded. Um, So what I did 
with my one particular site especially was focused on butchery um, just because I was finding that a lot of the bones as I went along had really distinct fracture patterns which are sort of indicative that people were using marrow also as a food source that sometimes gets um, overlooked I think but it's actually really nutritious really fatty Um, even today a lot of people still eat it as a delicacy so it's Mm -hmm. a really tasty thing that people at this one particular site Santa Clara were obviously really really focused on so I paid special attention to sort of all the butchery that we were seeing on animals such as um, the llamas so that was definitely one thing and also just sort of um, different measurements and things like that so I'm a little bit uh curious to know about your two sites so are they how far apart were they and do they represent different social classes is that why you chose them or is it quite uniform at each site it's quite uniform actually so i think they're if i remember correctly they're about four kilometers apart like as the crow flies kind of thing okay so not too far no not at all and um as of right now, it looks as though they're quite similar. There's quite a lot more things like the camelids, which are the llamas and alpacas at Santa Clara. But in terms of everything else, they look really similar. And one thing that I like to kind of distinguish is that I'm not really doing a comparison of elite versus commoner consumption because in this particular Mm -hmm. context these mound sites that we're seeing are usually associated with elite individuals so the fact that I'm dealing with two mound sites it's more kind of going to be looking at the degree of social differentiation between the two because anybody who would be at these sites would be sort of the upper levels of society so is is your purpose to um, compare these two sites or you want to see what the changes over time at the sites? It's going to be more, um, the time periods are a little bit tricky in this case. And that's something that's interesting about the one particular site is that it's really actually hard. We don't really have discrete spaces with really distinct dates um, because the way that they were doing architecture and disposing of animal remains kind of come together in an interesting way here where the animal bones were actually being used as floor fill. So say if, you know, you have four walls, you start dumping your trash in, eventually you get like a good layer built up when you're kind of done with it and that would be sort of packed over. Um, But with these sites also being mound sites, gravity is a bit of the enemy. Things Mm. like to roll. So something... If we find it in a particular location, we can't always trust that. So in this case, it's been sort of better to take it and deal with them sort of as holes over long time periods. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a lot of your research is dependent on things remaining over time. How do you account for things that people would eat that might not last over time? Or is that maybe not as important to you? Um, I think... It is really important for all zoo archaeologists to be really conscious of. That's what we kind of talk about, um, taphonomy and different things, sort of like those site formation processes and how that impacts preservation. But one of the great things about what's usually a desert environment in Peru is that the preservation is amazing. So we're getting... um, One of the side projects I did while I was there was looking at um, sacrifices of camelids. And in that case, what we're getting is actual, like, the hair and the skin are still present. Like, it's almost like they're so complete. It's kind of mind-blowing. So in this particular case, we're not so worried about what's not showing up, Mm. but it is something, obviously, we have to be wary of. Just just want to clarify, camelids, that's like llamas and alpacas? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so 
you talk about the uses of these animals. Would you mind walking us through some types of uses and maybe how that might look to you as a bone or hair or skin? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one thing that I'd like to start with with this is that I'm really lucky working in the area that I do in that I have some sort of like iconography um, in terms of ceramics and different things like that that I can look at that give me an idea um, about how people were actually using these animals or interacting with them. So we know with the camelids, so the llamas and alpacas, that they were not being ridden or anything. They're not great for that. But um, definitely being used as pack animals. Um, we know that they were keeping domesticated herds on the coast, which is really interesting because commonly the animals are associated with the highlands. So that's something that the fact that they're on the coast and we have sort of all the different ages, that's something that's really interesting. Um, but probably one of the biggest things I'm going to be talking about with my research is sort of the interaction with wild species and what that means. So one of the things that's been really interesting is looking at the sea lions and white-tailed deer. So these are two things from the ceramics that we know are really symbolically potent animals because they're one of the only few species in the area that are shown sort of interacting with humans, um, almost like warriors. Mm. Whereas with the camelids, we don't necessarily have that all the time. So there's something going on there, the difference between how humans are interacting with domesticates and how they're sort of interacting and thinking about those wild species. So taking it back to how you're... You, you're taking these bones, you're looking at them and identifying them. How are you turning that into an idea of a new state, as it were? Is, is that how you described it? It's like the yeah, formation so a, of a new statedom or yep. new administration. Absolutely. So with that, what I'm going to be doing is looking at it. It's not so much in terms... Well, it very much is about bones in the end. That's what zoo archaeology is. That's yeah. going to be a big part of it. But I think in the end, where it comes back to the stuff about the state and sort of the social differentiation is when we start thinking about differential access to food. So sort of seeing if there were really huge differences between the two sites in terms of everybody over here has all the llamas and nobody over there does. That would maybe tell us something about, well, somebody's holding the key to the access of these particular animals. And in this case, because the camelids are quite common, it's coming down to like, where are these significant wild species being found? And are there differences there? And that sort of allows us to see um, how differential access was sort of shaping social relations there. Nice. And so these wild species that you talk about, were they, are they just kind of roaming around or are they being harvested and kept and kind of like farmed or something or um there's a possibility with the deer we would definitely wouldn't call it true domestication but in certain ceramic um depictions we see people hunting them in what looks like a more controlled environment whereas with the sea lions um there are depictions of people going down and clubbing them wow yeah so these are kind of a lot more dangerous interactions than we would typically see with like a domesticated species and just how they're being shown sort of reflects that yeah, because uh, we were talking about this before the show, and I was saying you don't really think of marine mammals as being a food source mm-hmm. in towards more towards the equator. You think of it, you know, further in the, to, to the temperate area, yeah. like up up in Canada, and then especially in the Arctic and Antarctic. Absolutely. But um, so sea lions, that must have been a bit of a surprise, was it not? Um, I wouldn't say a surprise. I was surprised at how many I was finding, especially at the sites that are more inland. Like, these are not small animals. There was a good amount of um, sort of schlepping that would have to be done to get them where they're going. And the interesting thing is, too, is that we're not seeing that it's just particular parts ending up at the sites. It's likely that they were actually taking these animals whole 
and moving them around. Wow. So this is um, on in both sites you see it? Yep, we do. Okay. Yep. So the one on the coast is definitely a little bit less surprising, but the one inland was significant that they're there like that. And so you m- mentioned here in your abstract about um, unifying and dividing And I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that, what you mean by that. Mm -hmm, For sure. So that's getting back to that idea of social differentiation. So I guess an example that I like to use is that if we're all going to lunch and we all order the same thing, that might be sort of we know we have the same taste. We know maybe we come Mm -hmm. from... I don't want to say the same background, but have sort of the same history with food, I guess. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you get a situation where everybody's ordering different things, that says a lot about who people are as a person. And that's what I really want to get at in this project as much as possible. It's obviously a little harder projecting it into the past, but I really want to be getting at sort of the different um, communities of eating is one of the ways I like to talk about it is sort of how we prepare food and how we consume it and like the ways in which it's presented are all really indicative of community if people are doing the same or different things. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned a bit before about a bone maybe being uh, butchered or from stew. Were there any patterns in your two mound sites? Mm -hmm. Um, So with the butchery, that was definitely a lot more common, um, specifically for animals like um, the llamas at Santa Clara, which is the site that's a bit more inland. Mm. Um, With that, one of the things we're thinking about is that maybe just because this is a little bit closer to the highlands, that animals are coming and going. Um, A lot of the animals were older individuals as Mm. well. So maybe as they're sort of reaching the end of their usefulness, that maybe they're sort of being um, butchered at that site. And we're Mm. seeing a lot less of that at Guyanazo, which is closer to the coast. Hmm. So what do you see more of at at the other site? A lot more of the marine species. So with that, we're talking about coastal birds as well in that case. Um, Lots of different kinds of fish and actually quite significant, like, in size of the different fish species. We're seeing hammerhead sharks, all sorts of different big things. Uh, Are the guinea pigs too small? No, we have loads of guinea pigs, actually. That's another good domesticate that were kept in um, households, even still today, in certain areas in Peru. Um, they were probably, I would say, at both sides, the second most abundant thing, um, other than the llamas. I hear they're tasty. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I've tried them, actually. Yeah. What do you think? This not, is important not radio. I'm a huge fan. I wanted to like it, but no, no. Yeah, I guess my next uh, question would be, so are, have the diets changed significantly since 2000 years ago yes in a big way like there are still things um a lot of people eat guinea pigs still oh Um, wow a lot of people eating alpaca um but colonialism that's kind of the story of everything but colonialism so we have a lot more different species available down there now a lot of different domesticates um loads of different crops so it's a completely different foodscape in terms of that so in terms of using the animal, um, were you able to interpret the multiple uses of the animal, like maybe fur for certain things or, um, mm-hmm. yeah? One of the things that we wouldn't really see but we know is definitely something that, um, again, specifically the camelids were used for, is that their fine wool is really good for making textiles, which is something that the North mm-hmm. Coast is particularly famous for, I would say. Um, so sort of having these really fantastic textiles um, made from alpaca wool and things like that. Nice. And so you you talk about food kind of representing 
uh, a culture or society. Would you agree or what's your take on how that is these days and how our relationship is to food? I think it's one of those things. It's sort of the same but different because, Mm -hmm. um, again, we live in such a globalized society. Like, we have access to all any number types of foods at all hours of the day. It's not necessarily that we're being sort of constrained to what's local to us anymore. So I think definitely we still have sort of the typical cuisines when we think of certain places. But I think that that's really, really changing in terms of like different ingredients and different access to things. Mm-hmm. So we're getting towards a bit of the end of this, I'm afraid. But um, I know when we spoke to you last time, you talked we talked about what drew you to Peru. And um, you've got to go to do this. You are an undergrad Mm -hmm. and getting to go there. And now you're here as a researcher yourself. What what was the feeling? Was it what you expected? It was it. It was everything I wanted it to be. Honestly, it felt really right. Like once everything fell into place, I couldn't have been more happy with how everything went and getting to meet the people I did and working with the people I did. So like I wouldn't change a thing. And I guess that also begs the question, what's next for you? Oh, what's next? Ooh, scary. What would you you like to do? Yeah, um, definitely going to be doing a PhD, um, focusing on the food and the animals still. I don't know if it'll necessarily be a zoark project. There's been some talk about me maybe doing some interview work with people and how they're interacting with animals now. So that could be something really exciting in the future. Yeah. So... So we're going to wrap up here. It was so great to talk to you, Arwen. And Julia, thank you so much for being part of GradCast. My pleasure, mm-hmm. always. It's, it's oh, oh, I know. We're going <laughs> to miss her so much. So, But we, the rest of us will be around <laughs> in future weeks. We are GradCast. We are on CHRW 6 p.m. every Tuesday night. And if you'd like to get some of our podcasts, go to your iTunes store or all that stuff. Or head to gradcast.ca for streaming. If you want to be part of Gradcast or to be part be interviewed, please feel free to email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. This has been Susan and Julia talking to Arwen and Tristan on the board. Yay. <laughs> and see you next time.